I was 19 years old. I was living in a uh, Tumwa, Iowa, and I was coming out of the library, and there was a guy that I thought was homeless sitting on the steps, and he started to engage me in conversation, and he told me he was a Navy SEAL, and he had all these wild stories, and me, I'm just sitting there eating it up. I'm like, wow. He told me all this crazy stuff, and it was only later did I realize that his incredible stories were actually not credible. And in fact, why would he talk to some random kid outside of a library in Tumwa, Iowa, and tell him these things. I started to suspect that he was making some of those stories up. And then years later, I was like, I bet you that guy wasn't even a Navy SEAL at all. Now, the reason I tell you that is because we are about to embark on a letter that the surrounding story of this letter is Paul has gone through some incredible things in this town to whom he's writing. He's gone through these, these stories that any of us would hear that and we'd be like, I don't, I don't know, Paul. It seems almost incredible. If you want to read the surrounding situation, it's in Acts chapter 16. So Paul's actually not planning on going to Philippi. He's wanting to go somewhere else. By way of detour, he ends up going through Philippi, happens to be there on a weekend. He meets a bunch of ladies who were praying by a river. He converts one of them. She invited Paul and Silas into her home. He was walking around town preaching. There was a slave girl following him around town shouting, these are servants of the Most High. Paul put up with that for about three days, and then he was like, I can't do this anymore. And then he cast the demon out of the slave girl, but the guys who owned the slave girl were like, uh-oh, that's how we made our money. So they got really mad at Paul. So they started a riot. They said, these guys are trying to destroy our economy. So Paul ends up in prison. Paul's in prison with Silas. It's midnight. They're singing songs. There's an earthquake. Perfect chance to escape. If I was there, I would have thought, oh, this is God opening the door for me. Paul doesn't escape. Jailer, who's responsible for the prisoner, about to kill himself. Paul says, don't do that. We're still here. And this jailer and his whole household gets converted. So there's all this crazy stuff that's happening. All right. Now, fast forward 10 years later, Paul is in a different prison in a different town. This church that has been planted and grown in the last 10 years hears that Paul's in prison in Rome. And they're like, we got to go help him. We got to do something. First century prisons are not like 21st century prisons. You didn't get an orange jumpsuit. You didn't get three square meals a day. You didn't get classes. You weren't able to get your GED. You weren't able to be rehabilitated. They didn't care if you rotted away in prison. In fact, if you didn't have somebody on the outside bringing you food, you would die. And the Roman government was like, oh, well, his loss. They heard that Paul was in prison. They're like, we got to do something. The problem is Rome is 800 miles away from Philippi. So they've got to figure out, like, there's no Western Union. You can't Venmo money to Paul. So they've got to find someone who's willing to give up months of their life to travel all the way to Rome to help Paul out. So they collect some money. They find this guy, Epaphroditus, who's evidently not doing anything else. And he travels 800 miles. Now, this is the modern Google Maps route. We don't know if that's the route he would have taken. We don't know if he would have been by boat. But still, about 800 miles. It would have been a tough trip with a lot of money. I get a little nervous pulling like more than like 20 bucks out of the ATM. And I'm like, oof, I don't want to get mugged. This guy had a bunch of money from the church bringing it to Paul. There's very good evidence that Epaphroditus was actually planning to live in Rome, get a job and help support Paul as a representative of the church in Philippi from there. That would have been incredible. All right. So he brought all this attention, he brought all this money, he brought all these resources, but Epaphroditus seems to have also brought a question to Paul. And based on what we read in the book of Philippians, we get the idea that Epaphroditus was wondering, hey, Paul, we love you. 
We think you're a great guy. We remember all the cool stuff that happened when you started the church. Things are going great here, by the way. But the problem is you keep ending up in prison. What is going on with that? That seems a little suspicious. In fact, Paul, you keep telling us that Jesus is king of the world, that Jesus is in charge of everything, but you're rotting away in a prison. How do we reconcile those two ideas? Now, the reason we think Epaphroditus asked that question is based on what Paul said at the very beginning of the book of Philippians about, wait, what's going on? It looks like the bad guys are in charge. And so Paul's letter is an answer to that question, but it's more than an answer. And at the risk of overselling this, I think what Paul is teaching in the book of Philippians is a reality-shifting philosophy of life. I think Paul is saying, this is how you should think about things. This is how you should make decisions. This should be the way that you approach everything that you do in the world. That's a big deal. Paul's saying, I'm sitting here in prison, but you've got to understand that what I'm doing is exactly what I need to be doing, exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, exactly what God wants me to be doing and they're sitting there thinking how is that possible how in the world can you see things that way so let me just tell you what Paul teaches here has the power to transform your attitude your circumstances don't have to change but your your entire outlook can change it can inform every decision that you make because normally the way that you make decisions is to do what is most safe or what is cautious and Paul says nope that's not exactly how Christians need to make decisions that's not the most important paradigm And then he would say that you can reform your entire purpose in life. So we're going to talk about all of that. But first, I want to tell you about my favorite movie from the year 2000. There were a lot of great movies that year. But my favorite movie is a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I know it's so good. I was probably 23 when this movie came out, and I, somehow, I don't know, somebody gave me the soundtrack. I didn't realize that I would be a huge bluegrass fan, but there's bluegrass, and there's old school country, there's the Blind Boys of Alabama. I just, and I started buying these other albums. I wore this CD out. It was so good, you know. I'm a man of constant sorrow. There's a bunch of hymns. It's a great, it's a great soundtrack. I don't want to get too distracted. But the movie, the movie is also great. It's a cool story. These guys are on a chain gang. They escape. They got to find a buried treasure. Along the way, they come across the, the Bible salesman with the patch, right? Remember, they record the song with Homer, the blind DJ. They try to find Ulysses' uh, wife that he's been estranged from. Her name's Penelope. I don't know if any of those things sound familiar to you, but it was years later when someone pointed out that, oh, brother, where art thou, is just a modern retelling of the Odyssey. Odyssey. How many of you have read the Odyssey? Wow, I think a bunch of you are lying because that is a, (laughs) honestly, I do. (laughs) That is a hard book to read. I read like the first two sentences and I'm like, I'm out. I'll just watch Oh Brother, Where Art That Again? Because that's pretty good. But the Odyssey has, it has the Cyclops, it has Penelope, it has Homer, who's the, the blind poet. I mean, it has all these elements that are mapped on. The Oh Brother, Where Art That has all these elements that are mapped on from the story, the Odyssey, from the ancient epic Greek poet, um, the Odyssey. And so when the authors, the Cohen brothers, were making Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, they were adapting this other story. They were looking for 
for the narrative arc of this other story upon which to map this new one that they were writing, that they were creating. I want you to have that idea in mind because I believe that's exactly what Paul is doing throughout the book of Philippians. He is mapping his story onto another story. So here's what we're going to do. Philippians roughly divides into five parts. Five parts, by the way, I should have said this months ago, but the chapter breaks in the Bible are only marginally helpful. Sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they just cut a chapter right in the middle of a thought. By the way, Paul was not in prison writing a letter saying, hey, uh, now chapter two, chapter three. That was somebody 1,500 years later that added those. And so sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Um, But in this case, in Philippians, it's kind of not. And you're going to see why that is in a second. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at these five parts, and we're going to try to quickly look at four of them. And I want you to see how how parallel these stories run to one another. And then we're going to look at that. We're going to spend just a little bit more time looking at the fifth part and try to make one point. Part one. Part one is a story about Paul the Apostle. He's telling his current story, his current situation, what's currently happening to him. Paul, if God's in charge, why does it look like Rome is, is doing whatever they want? If God's truly in charge. And so Paul says, Philippians 1.12, he says, you got it all wrong. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me being in prison, being under house arrest, has actually served to advance the gospel. The gospel is moving forward. God has a plan. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. Palace guard? Who were the palace guards guarding? Who was there? Oh, maybe the Roman emperor, the most important human being in the world. Paul has proximity to him, even though he's in prison. It's strange how God works. My daughter, in fact, several of the kids are in a performance of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I had never seen it before, familiar with the story of Joseph, but if you remember the story of Joseph, God's got a plan for Joseph to be second command of all of Egypt, but the plan goes through slavery in prison, and we wouldn't write the story this way, but this is how God writes it. And Paul looks at his own situation, and he says, I actually think God's up to something here, and I think you are mistaking the circumstances. You're the ones getting confused. It's not God. God has something going here. He goes, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. But Paul, uh, this is pretty serious. You could die. Well, yeah, actually for me to live is Christ, but to die would be gain. That's completely not the way that we think about it. Most of our choices are made to avoid dying in some manner or fashion. And Paul says, that's not the worst thing that could happen to me. To die would actually be gain. And then at the end of this section, he includes this, this he includes the word rejoice, which, which is a command, but it actually has the idea of celebration in it. It has the idea of party in it, like, like we're going to rejoice. And he means it to such a degree that he writes it twice. And he does that several times throughout this letter. He goes, what has happened to me? It's about rejoicing. And I want you to know it's really, truly about rejoicing. He re-emphasizes that idea. So I think Paul might say a life spent in the service of Jesus is worth celebrating. 
If you were to sum all that up, a life spent in the service of Jesus, even if I'm going to die, a life spent in the service of Jesus is worth celebrating. Yeah. Then you get to the second part, the second part of this story, part two. He's going to talk about the Jesus story. In fact, I think Paul might say, hey, my story is a little like the Jesus story in the circumstances that I'm living. And then he quotes this poem or song lyrics. We're, we're not entirely sure. We just know that if, if all of us could read uh, Greek, we would understand there's a rhythm and there's a, a cadence to these words that indicate it's poetry. So that's why you'll see it formatted that way in your Bible. It's just a little bit different. And this, this poem is so good. In fact, let's, let's read it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11 says, Who, this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in the form of man or human form. You can see some of the rhythms of poetry in this wording. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it's kind of interesting because that line right there is the only place where this poem breaks rhythm. And it's like Paul was quoting something and he entered in his own little idea right there. Even death on a cross. Therefore, he humbled himself. God exalted him and bestowed on him the name. The name that is above every name. And this looks like it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 45. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And guess what comes next? Another double rejoice. And it looks like Paul is saying, my life in prison, I'm just mapping it onto the Jesus story. It's almost as if he's saying Jesus' life spent for others is not only a reason to celebrate, it is something to imitate. It's a, our lives or Paul's life is an adaptation of the Jesus story. That's what it looks like he's saying. Now this next section, part three, as we were reading it, we probably just buzzed through because it was talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we're like, who are these guys? I don't care. Let's just move on to the more important sections. But Paul's got a purpose here. Timothy and Epaphroditus have also mapped their story onto the Jesus story. They have made choices. They have made decisions. Their life philosophy reflects the same life philosophy that Paul has chosen, the same life philosophy that Jesus has chosen. And he points to both these guys that are living their lives in a way that Jesus would if Jesus were at the helm of their life. Philippians 2.20, he, he's talking about Timothy. He says, I have nobody else like Timothy, nobody else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But this guy, Timothy, he's living a different narrative. He's living a different story, and I can trust him to go into situations and make the kinds of choices that I would make and make the kinds of choices that I know Jesus would make. And then he points to Epaphroditus, this guy that they had sent the 800 miles. He's saying Epaphroditus risked his life so that you could serve God by serving me. He made choices like Jesus would make choices. He mapped his story onto the Jesus story. And I think Paul would say, listen, a life spent for others is a reason to celebrate. And guess what it includes at the end of this passage too, chapter 3, verse 1, another rejoice another celebration. 
And then he gets to part four. And this is funny because Paul talked about himself. He talked about Jesus. He talked about Timothy. He talked about Epaphroditus. And then he thinks about himself again. He's got, I got another thing actually that I want to point to. Another thing about me that I think is important to this story. I want to show you a picture of three guys. You may recognize Jim Carrey, Tom Brady, and Elon Musk. Jim Carrey made the funniest movie a 12-year-old has ever seen in his life. I thought I was going to die. I was laughing so hard. Tom Brady, of course, winner of, what are we at now, seven Super Bowl rings, right? And Elon Musk has uh, quite a bit of money. Jim Carrey, a pretty thoughtful guy, despite making some of the movies he's made, he was quoted as saying, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so that they would know that is not the answer. Because all of us are like, yeah, okay, Jim Carrey, you can say that because you're rich and famous, but I bet you if I had a little bit more riches and a little bit more fame, I I would be a little bit more happy. And he would say, I just wish everybody could experience it because it's not the answer. There's no light at the end of that tunnel. The grass is actually not greener. That is an illusion. I think that's a pretty wise thing for him to say. Tom Brady, after the fifth or so Super Bowl ring, which is a lot of Super Bowl rings, it's a few more than I have, he said, hey, these, these victories, he didn't say it like this, but the essence was it doesn't fill that void <laughs> that we have, that void to, to pursue and achieve. And then he got two more Super Bowls, so maybe, and then he retired, so he probably filled the void now. Nope. Then he unretired like two weeks later because he was like, nope, there's more void to fill, and maybe, maybe the eighth Super Bowl will do it. And then Elon Musk, I was listening to a sermon earlier this week, and the sermon was 10 years old, and they referenced the richest guy in the world, and at that time, it was Bill Gates, and he was worth $69 billion, and people thought, well, that is a decadent amount of money for any one person to have. Well, Elon Musk is worth $273 billion 10 years later. That seems like a decadent amount of money for any person to have, and in 10 years, somebody's going to be worth multiple trillions, and we're going to be like, well, that's really too much now. I mean, we really should. There should be a maximum wage at some point. But Elon Musk was asked, hey, are you happy? His answer? His answer is medium. Medium. Evidently, being the richest man in the world doesn't make you happy. In my experience, after about the first 10 billion, it's really kind of a wash after that point. You really don't need much more than that to live. So this section that Paul talks about, he says, listen, I chased a lot. And in his world, what he chased was education. What he chased was righteousness. What he chased was this value through theology and through being, well, essentially self-righteous. That's what he chased. And he said, all that stuff, I accomplished it. And now I consider it loss. All that stuff that mattered is lost, and he says in chapter 3, verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Can I tell you a fun little side note? That word garbage there, the English translators cannot bring themselves to translate it accurately. They have to clean it up. The word garbage is what you would flush down the toilet. It is not the polite clinical term for what you'd flush down the toilet. It's the term that the common person would use to talk about the sewage that was flowing through the trenches of the city. 
And Paul says, all my achievements, all my accomplishments, there's no reason to hold on to them. I consider them a loss. And do you see what he's saying? He's mapping his story onto the Jesus story. He's doing the same thing that Jesus did. I'm not going to hold on to this thing. And what I think he's essentially saying is that a life spent in the pursuit of Jesus, no matter the sacrifice, is a life worth celebrating. So at every point, hey, being in chains, spending my life for others, that's a life worth celebrating. Jesus spent his life for others, that's a life worth celebrating. Timothy spent his life for others, it's worth celebrating. Epaphroditus, in fact, all my accomplishments, Paul would say, forget them. It's a life worth celebrating in the pursuit of Jesus. And then he gets to part five and he says, now, how about you? And this is why I think this book is genius, because he's just gotten us all inspired about seeing the life of Jesus lived out in other adaptations. And he says, now, how about you? What about you? What would it look like for your life, for your choices, for your priorities, for your values to be adapted to the Jesus story? What would it look like if Jesus was at the helm of your life? What decisions would be made? What thoughts would be thought? What pursuits would be pursued? What would be let go of? How about you? Now, you might start to think, okay, all those guys gave up a lot. They risked their lives. Paul, that sounds a little scary when you start talking about that. That does not sound fun at all. That does not sound celebratory at all. And Paul writes in Philippians 4.4, 4, he says, rejoice. And you're like, rejoice? Yeah, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. And you're like, wait a second, Paul. Um, I don't know that I can just rejoice on command. That's not really how, how this works. I've got to have things lined out and settled and taken care of. I've got to make sure the 401k looks good. I've got to make sure the car is running. I've got to make sure that things are calm and the kids are all taken care of. And maybe then I can draw a nice bubble bath and put on some calming music. And Paul's like, no, rejoice. And then he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. You're like, Paul, uh, you, you don't know how hard life can be, Paul. And Paul's like, wait, what was that? <laughs> you, Paul, I, my life is pretty tough. My garage door won't work half the time. And Paul's like, I'm in prison. Paul, I've had it pretty hard because sometimes it's a little bit of a stretch to pay the bills. Paul would say, I don't have any money. In fact, if somebody doesn't show up to bring me a sandwich for lunch, I'll probably die. I, I, I'm telling you from these circumstances, rejoice. But Paul, you, and again I say, rejoice. And then it actually gets worse. Because Paul's not going to let his foot off the gas here. Because Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, hey, uh, by the way, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, Paul, well, you lost me there because I can't just not be anxious about anything. In fact, for some of you, anxiety may be an actual diagnosis for which you take medication. Paul, you're starting to mess with people's mental health and you need to just back off because you don't know what you're talking about. You start talking, don't be anxious about anything, Paul. That's dangerous. I mean, that sounds as trite as, oh, turn that frown upside down, buddy. Like, oh, come on, Paul, get serious. This is real life. Whistle while you work. Okay, Jim any cricket too blessed to be stressed okay <laughs> don't worry be happy it's a good song but still it's kind of like telling a spouse to chill 
right? You know what I mean? In the history of telling a spouse who's annoyed with you to chill, has it ever worked once? No. No. In fact, it's very effective at doing the opposite. And so when someone says, don't be anxious, now we're anxious about our anxiety. Because now Paul has told us not to be anxious. Well, pause for a second. Just Paul isn't being trite. He's not writing bumper stickers. He's not trying to mess with your medication. Hold on a second. He's talking, and this is really important. That word anxious, it, our translators, they just don't know what to do because this is a hard thing to figure out. But that word anxious is thought. And it literally is take no thought. Don't, don't pick up certain kinds of thoughts. Have you ever thought about this or noticed really that our problems aren't often the problem, but it's our thoughts about the problem that are the problem? Yeah. I realize there's exceptions. Some of you are like, I broke my leg. That's a problem. I get that. But think about the way our mind spins out of control when we have a problem. And really what happens is the thoughts about the problem become a greater problem. Some of you get a little, a little headache. You're like, oh, I have a headache. Or, oh, wait, no, that's, is that something worse than a headache? Maybe that's a tumor. And if it's a tumor, are they going to be able to sur do surgery on it? It's probably inoperable. And if it's inoperable, I better get my will in order. Oh, wait, I don't even have a will. I don't even have a lawyer. What am I going to do? My kids, I don't even have anything to leave my kids. I should start saving some money so I have something to leave my kids. Because when they can't operate on this tumor, then what are they going to be left with? And I should probably tell my spouse that if I die, I'm okay with them getting remarried. Because they're not going to be able to handle life completely on their own. What am I going to do? And your thoughts just start going and going and going and going. And then you take a little drink of water. And you're like, oh, it's just dehydrated. <laughs> okay. Whew. Dodged a bullet. All right. This is one I do. I don't know why I do this, but anytime it's just Corrine and I traveling somewhere, particularly on a plane, I'm like, this is the time Corrine and I are going to die. This is it when we're not with our kids. For some reason, I think when we're with our kids, God's like, I'll protect you. But when it's just Corrine and I, it's like, nope, this is your time. We need to teach your kids how to deal with real life by being orphans. And like, oh man. And so I start to spin out. Oh, how am I going to deal with this? And what's going to happen? I'm going to miss out on all these important events and I'm not going to get to walk my daughter down the aisle and I'm not going to get to see my son graduate. I'm not going to see what kind of careers they have and what kind of grandchildren I have. And God's like, stop, stop taking up those thoughts. Do not, Paul says, take up those thoughts. Don't take them up. They're not helpful because out of control thoughts never result in wise decisions. Amen. They just don't. Like, if you're worried about your grades, I know maybe if you're a teenager, this doesn't affect you as much as it does your parents. But if, you, if you're worried about your grades and you're thinking, my grades that matter to my SAT score or it matters to what college I'm going to get in and what college I'm going to get in matters to the people I meet and the degree I get and how, how qualified that degree is and how I'm going to live my life and the, and the spouse I might marry and the kids I might have. And if we're so anxious about that and our thoughts are spinning out of control, we might be tempted to cheat on a test to ensure a certain outcome. Or if you're dating and you're just not sure, the dating prospects don't look awesome and you want to find the one and you want to make sure that you have somebody before everybody's all gone, then maybe you're tempted to make compromises in your dating life. If you're anxious about your schedule, you're tempted to break commitments. If you're anxious about being liked, this is something I deal with, you're tempted to, to fudge the truth and make yourself better than you really are and not be honest about how things are and how life is. We don't make good decisions wise decisions without a control of thoughts.
But Paul says, do not be anxious, don't take up those thoughts, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, interesting, present your requests to God. Now, some of you are like, oh, Patrick, that is so cliche. I came, you're talking about anxiety, you're talking about worry, and you're just going to say, pray more. <laughs> of course, that's what I'm going to hear at a church. Of course. Well, before you knock Paul's solution to taking up those out-of-control thoughts, think about the things that you do with your out-of-control thoughts. We all process them in different ways. Some of us try to distract ourselves maybe by scrolling through social media and then you blink and two hours have gone by and you're even feeling worse now because your life compares so poorly to the people that you've been looking at on social media. Sometimes it's eating. Sometimes it's standing in front of the fridge like how can I numb these thoughts with food or sometimes it's trying to diet to be in control of how you feel about this one part of your life. Sometimes it's, it's any, well, any addictive behavior anything that we let get out of control in order to deal with our out of control thoughts and now we have two problems not just one so before you knock paul's solution which is prayer think about what you actually do is your approach better than that then at least give that one a try and then he goes on to say present your request to god and he says the peace of god which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus I, I like that metaphor because Paul's dictating and he's looking out the window at the guards around his house or his cell and he's thinking, yeah, just like those guys are, are posted there to prevent certain things from coming in and prevent certain people, me, from getting out, God will do that to your heart if you bring this stuff to him. And then he goes on to say, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, so don't take up those thoughts, but here are the thoughts you should take up. And it's a pretty familiar passage. It's the things that are noble and admirable and praiseworthy. Take up those thoughts. Those are the thoughts you should be holding on to. Let go of these thoughts and take up those thoughts. Now, some of you are like, okay, Patrick, I have prayed and I'm still anxious. I'm still worried. There's still a lot going on. I still don't know. God didn't guard my heart. Well, I've done that too, and I've still felt anxious after prayer. I, I've been there. And after days of prayer or weeks of prayer, still felt anxious. And I realize that it's often because when we read this passage of Scripture, we end at verse 8. Think of all these good things. That's what we end at. But Paul's not done talking about this topic in verse 8. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God will guard your heart. The God of peace will be with you. If you put these things into practice, what are these things that I'm putting into practice? You're mapping your story onto the story of Christ. You're living like Christ would in your world, in your job, in your family, in your situation. Do those things and the God of peace will be with you. Even if it's a prison cell, the God of peace will be with you. Paul isn't under any illusions about how hard this will be and how this will cost. And we want to overthink and we want to catastrophize and we want to play it safe ultimately and just be cautious. But Paul is saying, I'm telling you, and I've told you five different ways that a life spent in, in service and pursuit of Jesus will give you a reason to celebrate. That's what this book is, this letter is, over and over and over again. So we just have to stand back and ask ourselves, what, what is that? 
Because, and let me be a little bold here, let me be a little forward, I'm guessing there are at least elements or parts of your life that are not mapped on to the Jesus story, that are not adapted, that are not faithful recreations of the Jesus story in your life. So what, what needs to change? What needs to be flushed down the toilet? What needs to be risked? What needs to be taken on? What needs to be given up? I think that's such a valuable idea to sit and contemplate and give yourself some time and space and those out-of-control thoughts and those out-of-control feelings. Bring those to God. Think about what is true and noble and admirable and praiseworthy. Think about those things and then put this life into practice and the God of peace will guard your heart and the God of peace will be with you.